0: Your weekly dose of bookish goodness. Sharing our love of books and printed papers with the world. Most of the books will be quite old. Some will be rare, but others will be new. All of them will be unusual or notable in some way. It's your way to visit the library without visiting the library. We will focus mainly on Britain and England, but not completely. Each adventure starts with a library find, but ends who knows where. Join us in the library the Roaring Fire and the Leather Chairs. Cigars optional.
1: Welcome to this special episode of Library Discoveries. This is a crossover episode with our Spies of London podcast. The topic today is the wartime exploits on Crete of two very brave SOE heroes, Patrick Lee Farmer, the known travel writer, and Billy Moss, who became known as a writer when he published the account of what he and Patrick got up to when they abducted the leader, the general, who led the Germans on Crete and led the occupation for several months. Paddy and Billy is a special tribute to their activities and to the books that they wrote based on the abduction of General Kriper. Hope you like it. I really enjoyed researching this one, and there will be a follow-up episode in the autumn. Take it away, Paul. Although the idea was Paddy's, he was very much helped by a guy called Billy Moss. And Billy Moss went on to write up his experiences in a book called Ill Met by Moonlight, which became a very well-known movie starring Dirk Bogard as Patrick. So we have spies, we have travel writing, we have a very special book coming from the library, which is Ill Met by Moonlight by Billy. I didn't just want to do the normal kind of half hour thing. So we may do two episodes. We may split them up and do one now in August and one maybe later in the autumn. We could look at Artemis Cooper's biography of Patrick and just give you a little clue as to what Paddy got up to on Crete. So here we have page 169. Paddy had first outlined his plan to kidnap General Muller to Jack Smith-Hughes of SOE's Cretan desk. Smith-Hughes reacted positively to the idea, as did his commander, Brigadier K.V. Barker-Benfield. Paddy was given the go-ahead, promoted to the rank of Major, and told to put together a team. His instinctive choice for the job of second in command was Zan fielding, but two things made that impossible. The first was that Zan was in Crete, doing other things, and while Zan was small and dark enough to pass for a Cretan, he would never make a convincing German. So just to help you understand this, um, the idea behind abducting this general was to cause a real stir amongst the Germans occupying Crete but to do it successfully whoever was involved would have to look like a German they were going to dress in German uniforms or at least clothing that could pass for that and stop his car in the road Uh, pretending to be a roadblock, a German roadblock. So we go on. Paddy had already approached two different people for the post of second-in-command. It was only after they had both turned down the opportunity that he offered the job to Billy Moss, who accepted with alacrity. He was tall, blonde, an excellent driver, easy company, and he looked up to Paddy as a hero. From his Russian mother, he had learned Russian and also knew a little French, but did not know a word of German or Greek. Somehow they got around that. They abducted the general. It wasn't Muller in the end. If you know anything about SOE in the war, you might have heard of a man called Bickham Sweet Escott, uh, one of their most experienced executives and the head of the Cairo desk. And he had some real doubts about this. Um, He said that, you know, the only contribution would be to help the morale of the people of Crete and not really justify the cost and so on. But nevertheless, eventually they did get permission and the rest is history. They abducted the German general. It was not without event and risk and lots of close cause. Paddy became a hero on Crete during and after the war and for the rest of his life. And I think he was particularly proud of the ideas and the execution of that at a time when the people of Crete were starting to doubt that the allies would actually help them. It was a real uh, morale boost and also caused the Germans some considerable harm as well. So Paddy became famous for this, but he was also famous for many other things, not least his travel writing and letter writing to the Duchess of Devonshire and other people. He really seemed to know everybody who was everybody in London, In the 50s and 60s as well, John Betjeman, Evelyn Waugh. The list just goes on. Ian Fleming, Anne Fleming, particularly The Wives. That's a story for another day. So we will be focusing on Billy and Crete, but in particular as well, Patrick. We'll see where that one takes us. This will be a crossover, as I say, with Spies of London. So I'm really looking forward to this one. The two main books for this episode are the accounts. The two books at the heart of this episode are the accounts of the abduction of General Kriper by Moss and Lee Firmer. Billy Moss's book came out in 1950 and Patrick Lee Fermer's didn't come out at least in book form until after his death. His account was commissioned uh, as part of a larger work about the second world war and he wrote a chapter for that book which then expanded into a full book of his own. They are very Different. Billy's was delayed by the establishment in Britain, SOE and others, who wanted to protect the individuals mentioned in the book. That is not an excuse that really washes with me, having seen what happened with Spycatcher and so on. It was perfectly possible for Billy to put out a version of this book without naming anybody or with using made up names. My suspicion is that SOE, my understanding is that SOE was known to be secretive to the extreme. All kinds of rumours about fires in the records office and so on. And one of the reasons we have so few really good accounts from the SOE times is that the secrecy was just absurd even after the years after decades after the war people are expected to take their secrets to the grave most of them seem to equally well perhaps most of the escapades that they did were fairly routine you know blowing up bridges might be fun if you're doing it but it doesn't make great reading whereas Abducting a general, the leader of Crete, the hated figure Muller, and doing that successfully would have been incredible. It's a shame that Muller got taken away before they could do it and they. They got Kriper, who by all accounts was a nice guy and had absolutely no time to take reprisals on anybody in Crete, was taken off the island by SOE within weeks of his arrival and spent the rest of the war in a concentration camp in Canada and and later in Wales. So they got the wrong guy, which again, people like to mock SOE and say, well, they were just amateurs. But very often the amateurs, partially perhaps through ignorance, through lack of training, lack of equipment, lack of support, did things which others would not and which were in fact brave. And there is absolutely no question from anybody about the level of bravery involved here. Yes, there were moments of humour, there were moments of near calamity, there were moments of genuine bravery and, and high risk. So enough of my opinions. What do we think about Billy Moss's book? Well, never mind what I think about Billy Moss's book. Although Patrick Lee Fermor was involved in trying to get the book published, he has written to SOE about the manuscript, where he says, it is not a very good book. Too much is made of too little, and there are too many clumsy literary references and and insistence on a socially okay background and an attitude of patronage to the Cretans that hints that they were only fairly gentle savages. However, Hamish Hamilton is going to make pretty drastic editorial revisions. Revisions were made. Billy's book is nothing like Patrick's. By the time World War II started, Patrick Lee Fermo was a known writer in literary circles. He was not a soldier. He'd never been in the army, at least not until the war. He was a writer. Billy Moss was an officer in the Coldstream Guards who wrote a book. As it happens, I massively prefer Billy's book. I don't think, even if it had been published in the 50s, Patrick Lee Firma's book would ever have been a movie. Billy's has the feel of a thriller, and yes, he does take two pages to to mention about the not knowing Morse code and nearly getting the rescue from the beach messed up because they didn't know the Morse code for B, and Patrick Lee Firma does that in about two sentences. Maybe it's the fact that the book is so old I've got the uh, first edition here in front of me from the London Library. It's got photos. Well. Both books have photos. I think what I'm trying to say is that Billy Moss's book was based on diaries written during the events when they captured the general, the planning, the capture, the aftermath and the hiding in the hills and the waiting and trying to arrange the rendezvous to get them off the island. It's all from diaries. Now, Patrick Lee Firmer's memory is known to be incredible. Maybe his book is partly based on... Billy's diaries and and what he read of, of that book, written years after, of course, but it's equally likely, and you can tell from some of the incidents that are in Patrick's but not in Billy's that a lot of it is done from memory. He did write some war reports for SOE in Cairo very soon after the events. So although we don't have the diaries written at the time, we do have the war reports written very soon after. And of course, they made a TV show in the 70s and they did other things, public appearances in Greece and Crete. And and yet Patrick doesn't really write too much about it in his letters. So it was in his mind. There's a lot of guilt around it around what happened to the chauffeur, a lot of guilt around his accidental shooting of his friend, a lot of mistakes, obviously, in terms of high stress. But there's no escaping the fact that Ill Met by Moonlight, Billy Moss's book, is the more readable, shall we say. It might not be better. It might not be worse. It is different. It might not be as cool, I think. What perhaps Patrick didn't like about Billy's book was the wide-eyed excitement of it. But that comes partly because it was from the diaries, I think. It seems to me, if you look at their careers after the war where Patrick went back to Crete, did a few things, but generally kind of lost interest in it or lost saying that somebody loses interest in something. It makes one set of suggestions, perhaps saying that he just simply had enough of the stress and the terror and the risk and the constant living in caves. Perhaps that just simply wore him out. Whatever happened, Patrick left Crete behind. Yes, he settled in Greece in later life, but emotionally, if you look at all the letters, thousands and thousands of pages of letters, Crete has been left behind and Patrick lived into his 80s. Billy could never leave the war behind and he died at the age of 44, 15 years after the book was published. It was Patrick's knowledge of Crete, his local networks, his grasp of the language, his learning and education, not his combat skills, although he certainly did exhibit military behaviours. It was Patrick's awareness and planning and constant creativity that made the abduction of General Kuiper possible. But Billy was a key part. He was number two. He was absolutely crucial at key times. He was the one who hit the chauffeur, who had his hand on his gun. This would not have happened as successfully as it did without both of the guys. I don't think it matters too much whose idea it was. The delivery of it required skills that each one had that the other didn't have. It was a proper double act. Patrick speaks very highly of Billy before and after his death. Patrick fully credits Billy's role in the abduction, but I think he's too harsh on the book, Ill Met by Moonlight. I think the book is great. It really stands up. Even now, 70 years later, it's a really good read. And there are many books you'll get who, which were bestsellers at the time. Nobody can remember them now and nobody would even want to read it now. This book, written in fact, written during the abduction, effectively, because it's from the diaries, is still a page-turner 70 years after it was written. Patrick Lee Firmer's book is much more academic, more detached, more distant, of course. It was written many years later. It's a very important contribution to the story and to the folklore around it, but it's nowhere near as interesting. So remember that this episode is meant to be about abducting a general. It's about Paddy and Billy. We've looked a bit more about Patrick... And this is, this is the double injustice here. Patrick was a known writer. He's still known as one of the great travel writers, if not the greatest travel writer. And he lived to a very old age, which means he had a long time to think about it, reflect on it, talk about it, get some distance from what happened on Crete. Billy had none of these luxuries. He taught himself how to write as a way of coping, perhaps with the abduction, or perhaps as a way of making ends meet after possibly all of that. He became quite famous for a while and wrote other books afterwards because of the success of this book and its film but Billy died at 44 in a troubled state people say post-traumatic stress could well have had a part in that but Patrick living a long time being a gifted writer was always going to have the last word and perhaps he knew this people say that he allowed Billy's account to stand on its own for decades as a tribute to Billy and a tribute to their adventures together but I think he was always waiting to have the final word on this, and he has had the final word until now. But there is more to come on this. I have found the National Library of Scotland has Patrick's papers. They were bought by the John Murray Foundation, which is Paddy's publisher. There are hundreds of thousands of pages of stuff. The inventory is 80 pages and it shows there is a big section on Crete and the General's Abduction. It's free to access for the public, so I will be accessing it and I will be looking at it and I will be expanding on this in various ways. There might be a follow up episode in the autumn. There might be some blog entries as I go through the archive. I remain convinced after everything I've seen and read and heard third and fourth and fifth hand about this that SOE really made some achievements during the war. SOE was full of brave individuals who occasionally pulled together as a team in ways which were astounding. When you think that these guys nearly didn't get rescued because they didn't know the Morse code for the letter B, which at the time, you know, you might not, I don't know the Morse code for letter B. I did look it up and I've forgotten it already. But at the time, Morse code was an absolutely essential piece of military training. So you could signal by flashlights and so on to boats, airplanes. They had not the right training, not the right equipment, not the right level of planning and help and assistance from the regular forces. What these two guys did with the local people, helping them, assisting them, providing useful intelligence, connections through villages and family groups, reporting on the positions of the German occupiers at all times. This was a classic piece of, of First and foremost, teamwork, and also just sheer bravery. It didn't have any impact on the course of the war, but it did help Crete. Crete believes at times that Britain didn't help them enough, that the battle for Crete, which resulted in the Germans occupying Crete for the rest of the war, was mistakenly carried out, perhaps negligently carried out. Perhaps we can look at that again in the autumn. The feeling from these two books, which for clarity are Ill Met by Moonlight by Billy Moss and Abducting a General, by Patrick leigh Firmer, although published after his death, are an important chapter in Mediterranean wartime history. They deserve to be better known in Britain. They are well known in Crete. There are monuments and memorials. The Patrick Leigh-Firma house in Greece is stuffed full with his memorabilia. These two deserve better remembrance and recognition in the UK. And hopefully this episode will help to revive that and and to bring this story to a new audience, a younger audience, a different audience, an audience struggling with, with its own adversaries in a different time. Yes, we have the technology, but it would still be handy to have a flashlight and a book of Morse code, even now. Even when your mobile phone battery's dead, the internet's gone down and the GPS doesn't work, a torch and a Morse code book would be very useful. One of the most recent books about Patrick Lee Firmer is the collection of letters, Dashing for the Post, and more recently, and imaginatively, More Dashing for the Post, selected by Adam Sisman. These books are great because they are recent, so I've got Dashing here, which is 2016, and More Dashing was a couple of years later. Adam Sisman is known to me as the biographer of John le Carré, and he seems... Uh, from recollection to have spent time with John and and really tried to present John's life in a, as truthful a way as possible. Adam's a fellow of the RSL, just a generally all-round decent guy and I think he's done a really good job with these letters. The reason I cannot quite accept that Patrick Lee Farmer is, is the world's greatest travel writer is that he did not do uh, sufficient travel writing to satisfy me or indeed any of his friends. Either that, or it was so long ago that we've all forgotten about it. So if we just look even in this copy of Dashing here, we start with The traveller's Tree. Now The Traveler's Tree is very significant, not least because it's Patrick's first full length book about the Caribbean, but because it allowed me and others to suppose Patrick might be the model for James Bond because Patrick knew Ian Fleming before and during the writing of Casino Royale. And in one of the Bond books, it might be Casino, Fleming or has Bond mentioned The Traveller's Tree and say what a great book it is and how interesting it is about voodoo and all this. Patrick then went on to write The Violins of Saint-Jacques three years later. Then in 1957, we have a time to keep silence, but really Manny or Marni in 58, his book about Greece is when he really takes off strangely, this is this is my criticism here, and it's who am I to criticise anybody, of course. In 1958, we have Marnie. In 1977, we have A Time of Gifts. Even my quick arithmetic suggests 20 years, 19 years between those two books. At the prime of his life, when he should have been writing about everything, you know, 19 years when Patrick Lee Firmer failed to finish a book. Uh, partly that's because the Time of Gifts started as an article, and then it came into a book, and then so on. And it refers to his great trudge, his walk across Europe when he was 18. So it was a a middle-aged man writing about an 18 year old boy and it's fabulous. I think it was perhaps a little bit too fabulous and therefore Patrick waited another 10 years before he produced the second volume and he never produced the third volume. It never got finished and it had to be finished by uh, Artemis Cooper after his death. And I think this book in front of me, dashing for the post, provides an explanation. So uh, first of all, these are letters as you might have guessed, but a good proportion of them were written during the time when Patrick was not producing any books, 58 to 77. And the people he writes to are an absolute who's who. Basically, if you were to buy who's who or who was who, you would find all the, these people in it in Paddy's address book. He wrote to Deborah Devonshire and there was, there was a separate collection with her letters in, Anne Fleming, Nancy Mitford, Lawrence Durrell, Diana Cooper, Joan Rayner. And the very first letter in this collection is from his monastery cell where he was staying when he wrote about monastic life in a time to keep silence. His letters exhibit many of his most engaging characteristics and yes, they do. And there are some extraordinary stories to, including the making of Ill Met by Moonlight, about the kidnapping of the general. This is, w- this is the only thing I can point to about Patrick as saying, look, great guy, great company, great friends, gifted writer, really top writer, wasted, completely wasted. 20 years without books, without anything substantial. Yes, a few articles and so on, but nothing substantial. But these letters are absolutely first rate, and the issue I have with that is that there are people, and there are many, many people, who will not buy a collection of letters. End of story. They just won't do it. Be, and be, understandably, you know, I wrote an article some years ago about the art of letter writing and, and reading collections of letters, and some of them are terrible. I found Georgia O'Keefe's collection just awful. But occasionally, you get a diarist or a, a letter writer, what's 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 the word for a letter writer? You get a letter writer who is just so good that you just have to read. You have to read them. And although I preferred In Tearing Haste, that's partly because Patrick's intensity is offset by Debo's kind of more measured approach, her lighter approach. His letters themselves could be, you know, feature articles in The Times or any newspaper, any literary journal they are exceptional yes they are overbearing sometimes if you read one after the other you know you don't perhaps realize that there are months or years in between each one the combination of them is quite a heavy read and and letters are great for flicking through on boxing day the letters of patrick lee firmer do make up for the loss of those 20 years his wartime achievements and his approach to life before the war when he walked through Europe, as it was changing in front of him, are genuinely brave. It's easy to say now, oh, you know, between my A-levels and my university degree, I'm going to go off across Europe. What those people mean is usually train, some of them even mean plane, some of them drive perhaps in a rusty old car. Nobody means walk. Although he didn't walk the full distance, of course. That is how he set off. He literally set foot across Europe. At a time when it wasn't the safest thing to do. It was the early 30s, so it was nowhere near the war. But things were going in that direction. Things were changing very quickly. And Eastern Europe, Transylvania in those days was even less developed than it is now. So for an 18-year-old to say, you know, I've been kicked out of so many schools that I don't think the military is for me and I don't think university is for me. I am who I am. I know who I am at 18 and I am going and I'm going on on my own with two boots and a book and a pencil. That in itself tells you everything you need to know about Patrick Lee Firma. And the letters just reinforce that. He has, he traveled his whole life, whether for work or just because he couldn't sit still. These letters, the letters of Patrick Lee Firma, dashing for the post by Adam Sisman is brilliant. Don't start with it. If you need to start with letters, start with the Devonshire letters in tearing haste. I would start with the Artemis Cooper biography.
0: Library Discoveries is available wherever you prefer to subscribe to your podcasts. Paul Loxley is an average spy from the north of England. To keep him out of trouble, Spanton of MI6 sent him to a private girls' boarding school in the Chiltern Hills. Unfortunately, as so often in the past, trouble found him. The pupil he was sent to watch was me, Niku Hayek, and I absconded. They think it was something to do with my Iranian father, an arms dealer and international man of mystery. Anyway, we followed him to Hong Kong. My friend's teacher, Miss Leclerc, turned Loxley's head. And was that my fault? No. Can Loxley defeat his own demons and revive his career? Probably not. Not if you ask me. He's toast.